continuing in our consideration of the Lord's Day, basically, uh, the first day of the week as the day for Christian worship. We're in the New Testament. I'm not going to do all the review. It would take me uh, 20-some sermons, I think, to do that review, so I'm not going to do that. But um, we've seen that God instituted one day in seven at creation. And we've also seen that um, the prophets, though they, the prophets of the Old Testament, they recognize the last day of the week. They also talk about changes that are coming when the servant of the Lord or when the Messiah comes. Changes in the temple, changes in the priesthood, changes in sacrifices, and changes in Sabbath. Not the total obliteration of the concept of temple, priests, sacrifices, or Sabbath, but a, but a transfer, a, a shift, uh, an alteration in application because of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the reason we are here on the first day of the week. We often don't think this way, but first day of the week, gatherings for public worship in the name of Jesus Christ haven't been around forever. They started There was a time in the first century when first day gatherings in the name of Jesus Christ did not exist. And then slowly but surely, at least in the Western world, it permeated our culture where um, people of all denominations gather, most denominations, gather on the first day of the week worshiping Christ as God in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as we consider the New Testament, if you just did a fast read from Matthew all the way through Revelation, you would see uh, this slow but sure first day of the week gatherings develop. It doesn't start in the Gospels. Well, actually, it does, and we'll look at that in a second. Um, Jesus gathered on the first day of the week after his resurrection and before his ascension. Isn't that interesting? Um, But you'll see this slow but sure development. By the time you get to the last book of the New Testament, in Revelation 1.10, you have this phrase, Lord's Day. Matter of fact, there's a section in our hymnal that's all about the Lord's Day. Now, when you read Revelation 1.10, there's not a footnote at the bottom of the text saying, oh, by the Lord's Day, I mean this. He just throws it out there. The assumption being, whoever he's writing to knew what he meant by the phrase, Lord's Day. So by the time the last book of the New Testament occurs in our reading, we have this official title for a day called the Lord's. Now, if we backed up in our New Testament reading to 1 Corinthians, we would see another official title uh, for a supper, Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.20. So we have Lord's Day, we have Lord's Supper. And some of you know that word for Lord's is used two times in the New Testament. Revelation 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 11.20. I already mentioned the places. It, it is an adjective, actually. It means in, in a peculiar manner belonging to the Lord. So... The Lord is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has a 
in a peculiar manner, owns the supper called the Lord's Supper and owns the day called the Lord's Day. They are in a peculiar manner related to him. Now, where this, these phrases came from is interesting. My wife and I were, dis- well, we weren't discussing it. I was talking about this on the way to church today. Where do you think those phrases came from? Well, we know that John wrote Lord's Day and Paul wrote Lord's Supper. But as with Lord's Day, when you go to 1 Corinthians and start reading it, Paul doesn't say, oh, by the way, what I mean by the Lord's Supper is this. He just throws the phrase out there, assuming they already knew what it meant. So both phrases don't come into use by the first writing of the phrase. They're already in use. Where do you think they come from? There's two options. The apostles sitting around after the ascension, working through all the data that they had to work through as apostles who were uh, with the Lord during his earthly ministry and had been appointed by the Lord to write the New Testament. Um, they were sitting around and maybe they were tossing around options. What are we going to call this thing that he instituted in the night in which he was betrayed when he took bread? What are we going to call this? Uh, what are we going to call the, the day that we gather as believers in him? What are we going to call that? They could have done that or co- could have come from the Lord himself. We, we, we don't know its origin. We do know it's in the, both of them are in the Bible, and they make very plain to us that there are, there's at least one holy food and at least one holy day under the new covenant, under the inaugurated new covenant. The first day of the week and that which we call the supper. So, We've looked at the Gospels. I looked at two passages, Matthew 12, Mark 2, where Jesus teaches about the Sabbath day. And Jesus leaves us with the expectation that there's going to be more information about this holy day of the week coming. Because he calls himself the Son of Man, and he says he is Lord of the Sabbath. And that phrase, Son of Man, goes all the way back to Daniel 7, and it's a title our Lord used more than any other title for himself, and it's a title that's appropriate to him and for him during the entirety of his, of the, what we call the between the comings of Christ, the days in which we live. He is now the exalted Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath with the expectation that his lordship over the Sabbath will take on characteristics uh, that are dependent upon his work as the Son of Man for sinners. So, what about the rest of the New Testament? We looked at the Gospels. What about the book of Acts and the epistles? What do they teach us? Well, they teach us uh, several things. One thing we learn is that um, in, in terms of the first day of the week, that is the day that Christ rose from the dead. Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's an obvious observation. There are many passages. Uh, for instance, Matthew 28, 1, the first day is the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, or when the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, was over. That's when he rose from the dead. 
Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20, uh, Mark 16. Those passages are very clear. He rose from the dead early on the first day of the week. Now, five times the Gospels mention this fact. The Gospels mention the fact that Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week five times. Now, how should we understand that? Um, Is it merely an historical accounting with no practical or theological implications? Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, but it means nothing. It's just a fact of history. Deal with it. Or should we understand understand the act of God the Son incarnate in rising on the first day of the week will actually have theological and practical implications for those who follow Jesus. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you know it is the latter. It's not merely a historical fact. It is a redemptive historical fact with theological and practical meaning or entailment for us. Now, historical acts of God, like the resurrection, occur first. Then God writes about it through, in our case, the authors of the New Testament, right? They didn't write first, then the resurrection happened. The resurrection happened, and then they wrote about it. The Gospels just narrate it for us and don't draw out many entailments as far as uh, application. Um, But the rest of the New Testament seems to go back to the first day resurrection and say, you know what? In light of the first day resurrection, we're going to revolve our lives around it. Different than prior to the first day resurrection. That's where actually the first day uh, gatherings occur. That's the reason why the first day gatherings occur in the New Testament. So what I want to do, after all this mumbling, is to look at the prominence of the first day immediately subsequent to Christ's resurrection. So the prominence of the first day of the week immediately subsequent to Christ's resurrection. Listen to these texts. Here's Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. That's Matthew 28.1. Here's Matthew 28.5 and 6. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said, come, see the place where he was lying. Here's Matthew 28, 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Here's Mark 16, verse 9. Now when he rose early in the first day of the week, uh, justification for morning worship right there, he appeared first to Mary 
Magdalene, and then Mark 16, 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, Mark 16, 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. This is all on the same day. Now, on the first day of the week, this is Luke 24. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And here's Luke 24, 13 through 15. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 26 of Luke 24. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Now, these are all post-resurrection appearances of Christ, and they all happened on, guess which day of the week? On the first day of the week. Now, that could just be a fact of history with no theological, you know, pregnant meaning in it. Uh, But when you read the rest of the New Testament, you go, there is something important about the first day. I wonder if, between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, he was trying to drill something into people's heads by having these first day appearances, and especially the fact that the the apostles chose to highlight those appearances in their their written uh, documents, the, 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 the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, how do we account for these? How should we account for these first-day resurrection, uh, post-resurrection appearances of our Lord? We can just kind of think through it a little. Uh, The New Testament notes recurring first days after the resurrection of Christ. Recurring first-day appearances of the resurrected Lord to his disciples. The New Testament clearly records that. These post-resurrection and pre-ascension appearances seem to assume something peculiar about the first day of the week. It just seems that way at face value. Okay? We, I'm not drawing hard, fast conclusions yet. I just want to get you thinking along with me. And, of course, this assumes you have some knowledge of the New Testament. Uh, it seems to have some sort of peculiar Uh, meaning. Though this observation of these post-resurrection, pre-ascension, first-day appearances, though this observation doesn't prove that the first day of the week is the Christian sacred day for church worship, taken together with many other issues I've already discussed and will discuss later, They indicate that something is unique about the first day of the week, even after Christ rose from the dead. Okay, so these are post-resurrection, first day of the week appearances. It seems that this is, that the Lord was trying to teach us there's something peculiar, unique. We would say, wonderful, about the first day of the week, this side of the resurrection. It's the day that the Lord Uh, The Lord's presence is with his people as they gather. It's their day of worship. 
Now, we just considered between the resurrection and ascension, first day appearances. I read the passages. Let's consider something else. This is in the New Testament as well. First day corporate meetings in the New Testament. Assuming you have a basic knowledge of the New Testament, you know there are first day corporate meetings of disciples of Christ in the New Testament. Uh, For instance, Acts 2.1 indicates that the Jerusalem disciples were assembled on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival, an annual festival, one of the three annual festivals, and it occurred on a Sunday or the first day of the week. They were assembled on the day of Pentecost. Uh, We read, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, the Lord had told them, you remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, told them to wait in Jerusalem. Okay, so they're waiting in Jerusalem for this promised endowment of the Holy Spirit uh, upon them and within them for them to carry out their work. Here they are gathered on the first day of the week. So there's a, there's a worship service on the first day of the week, we might say, at least in embryonic form with the, uh, the disciples. Acts chapter 20 is another text that is clearly teaches uh, first day meetings. Remember Acts chapter 20 verse 7 says this, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Justification maybe for an evening service or long sermons, right? He continued his message until midnight. But the point here is that here is a first day of the week meeting. Now, why would Luke mention that? For no reason whatsoever? Why were they gathering on the first day of the week? You know, I have a friend who's now absent from the body and present with the Lord, he argued in a book that it was convenient for them. Just convenience. That's why we have first day meetings in the first century. How convenient would it be if you were a Jewish teenager who confessed Jesus and said at some point to your father, Dad, uh, I might go to synagogue with you. I don't know how long I can do that but I'm definitely going to go meet with those people that follow Jesus on the first day of the week. That's not very convenient, is it? That's an inconvenience, actually. To argue it's just merely convenience is just rubbish. It's like, come on, you can do better than that. This is a seismic shift for Jewish people in the first century to go from the seventh day to the first day, and you want to argue it's merely convenience? Now, since he's absent from the body and present with the Lord, I want you to know I'm not picking on him. I'm picking on his lousy argumentation. There's a distinction between uh, doctrines and dudes, right? Between ideas and individuals, between proposals and persons. So I don't think the convenience argument works uh, at all. Matter of fact, Luke tells us in Luke in Acts chapter 20 that the disciples in Troas met on the first day of the week with no comment on the reason why. Just throws it out there. Now again, is, is you just 
throwing it out there and it just kind of just taking up space because he had a, a word count he wanted to meet? Or is there probably a reason why there, uh, he says it to indicate to us that's when they met and then to have us even dig even farther and say, well, why would they meet on the first day of the week? This isn't a command to meet on the first day of the week, is it? Now on the first day of the week, thou shalt meet with the disciples. It's not a command. He just says, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul ready to depart the next day. That's important, ready to depart the next day as well. You know what the Puritans did with that. They said, it is good and right and just to depart on Monday and to restrict your travels to piety, necessity, and mercy on, on the first day of the week. But anyway, this is not a command, right? He's not commanding the church. It seems to assume a habit or practice that was already in place, doesn't it? The way you read it, I think it does. Here's what one of those Puritans, John Owen, says, this gathering on the first day, they did without any extraordinary warning or calling together. It's just, by this time in the history of the New Testament church, it's just their habit. It's their custom. It's not the institution of first day meetings. It's a record of one such. It's not the only one that was going on. By implication, we would say, oh, There must have been other disciples elsewhere gathering together to break bread and hearing instruction either from an apostle or, you know, their their pastor or their teacher. So on this day, the disciples conducted activities with special religious significance. Everyone I know uh, sees that in this text. Now, some understand the breaking of bread here to be the Lord's Supper, Um, Paul spoke to them, obviously, it says this, surely teaching them apostolic doctrine. He was an apostle. Um, They met on the first day of the week. They had fellowship around spiritual matters. This sounds like Acts 2.42 in application, doesn't it? Remember Acts 2.42? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. It's also interesting to note that Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Acts 20, verse 16 tells us that. Well, if you're in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, why do you meet with the saints? And why are you waiting to leave till tomorrow? He stayed seven days in Troas, Acts 20, verse 6, and he did not leave until Monday. Here's what one man says about this. It seems that this incident occurred on the day that the churches ordinarily gathered for worship for the way that Luke includes a reference to the church meeting on the first day of the week with no further explanation indicates that this was that which was in common observance among all the disciples of Christ. That's just one little incident from Acts chapter 20. It's easy just to to read over it and not think about what's happening there. 
I think it's important. It's not all the evidence of first day meetings in the New Testament. Now we go out of the book of Acts. Turn over, if you would like to, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Because here's another very important text about first day gatherings. 1 Corinthians 16, the first two verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia. Now that's interesting. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. What I told them, I want you to do the same thing. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Now here the Corinthians are told to do something that Paul had ordered the churches, plural, of Galatia to do. Now, could I order uh, the churches of the Antelope Valley to do something? Like, can I give an authoritative command to the churches of the Antelope Valley to take a special offering for Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida? I can suggest to them, but I don't have apostolic authority. The apostles had authority to institute the same things in various churches, plural. So this is, this is very unique apostolic authority that we're looking at here. And notice uh, Paul mentions the first day of every week. On the first day of every week. That's interesting as well. It's not just on the first day of the week or next Sunday, but on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. There's the qualification. So this does not order first day meetings in Corinth. It seems to assume that's when they met, and he assumes that they meet every week. Which, by the time we're in 1 Corinthians, reading through the uh, New Testament, especially if you read it chronologically, which is fascinating, um, this shouldn't surprise us. People meeting every first day of the week in the name of Jesus for acts of religious or public worship. It shouldn't surprise us. At the beginning of the Gospels, um, and through most of the Gospels, as you read, that, sh that would surprise you unless you listen to the sermons on the prophets and, and the Sabbath under the New Covenant, because then you'd know, oh, we're going to expect some changes coming. But by the time you get to 1 Corinthians, it shouldn't um, shock us. They are meeting every week. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul discusses the meeting of the Corinthian church in the context of the Lord's Supper. If you'd like to, turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. This is... This is important here, and it's related to this 1 Corinthians 16. In 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22, here's what we read. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, public assembly, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, verse 18, when you come together, if you didn't know what he meant, come together the first time, he's going to qualify it. 
when you come together as a church, public assembly, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it, verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, come together, meet together, come together as a church. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's the only time it's called Lord's Supper in the entire Bible, in a rebuke, a context of rebuke. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Now, notice some things here. Paul distinguishes between the gathered church, we could say the house of God, and their own homes. You should have seen that or heard it. Verse 17, you, plural, come together. Verse 18, when you, plural, come together as a church. And then verse 20, when you, plural, meet together. And verse 22, do you, plural, not have houses in which to eat and drink? See the distinction? They have homes, and then there's another thing called you, plural, assembling or gathering. He specifically mentions coming together for the purpose of partaking the Lord's Supper, though they had so trampled upon it that he's not even willing to call it that. He's rebuking them. Now, upon what day of the week did the Corinthians come together as a church? 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't tell us. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us, though, on the first day of every week. And the old, old, old writers all saw uh, the supper as a weekly experience of the assembled saints from considerations like this. Now, of course, there's pushback on the 1 Corinthians 16 thing. Some people say, well, this is, this is not a public assembly he's talking about here. It's just a private putting aside and saving, but um, it has nothing to do with public assembly. Now, if it was a private uh, putting aside of money and saving, they would have to take a collection when he came, Right? Uh, what does the text say? Let's read it again, because this is important to see in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. He doesn't want collections when he come. Comes. He wants them to collect prior to his coming so that they don't have to have a collection when he comes. He wants the church, uh, let's just put it in our framework, he wants, uh, he wants you to write a check out to the church and either hand it to Mario or put it on the memo for the saints in Jerusalem every week and then the apostle's going to come and we can give him the total. 
something like that. On the first day of every week, you are to do that. As you may prosper, there's this qualification. So some people argue, oh, this is just a private thing, and then, and then when the apostle comes, then they could, you know, take the offering. He says, I don't want that. I want you to, I want you to give toward this cause so that when I come, we don't have to take an offering. The assumption is, Every Lord's Day, until the apostle was able to get there, they were, to suppose, they were supposed to take an offering for the needy saints. Not only the Corinthians, but also uh, the Galatian churches. So this shouldn't surprise us in one sense, the apostle having authority to bind churches to certain practices. Um, they were apostles of Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. So Paul has the authority to direct Christians of all the churches in a certain direction. In 1 Corinthians eleven two, 2, he says, Now I praise you. Because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So apostolic traditions were binding on the Corinthians and the Galatians, we could add. Traditions that were first spoken and then written about in in these letters. So for Paul to give orders uh, to churches means that whatever he ordered was binding on them. So we could say this, apostolic authority carried with it the authority of Christ himself. There's an ancient saying, some of you might have heard it before, the apostle of the man is as the man himself. You ever heard that before? I think it's a second century saying. And what they're doing is they're saying, look, when apostles speak authoritatively, and when they're, especially in these written documents, it is Christ himself using them as a vehicle of revelation. And so we are not to obey Paul, ultimately. We are to obey the apostles' Lord, right? So that when we read the New Testament, it's like... Um, Thomas Watson said, read the Bible as if it were God's love letter written to us. Uh, It is the written word of God. So when the apostle of the man, Christ Jesus, um, either assumes a practice or requires things, it is Christ himself doing that. So first day meetings of the church for worship then I believe, are clearly the will of Christ for his churches revealed through his apostles. Now, here's an an interesting question as well. And it's so interesting, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. Maybe it's not that interesting. Okay, now, let's think about this, first day gatherings. Would we say, well, it seems like the apostles 
want the churches to meet on the first day, at least Paul does, uh, Galatian churches and the Corinthian church, or churches, and we would say, I think by implication, probably all other churches, um, it is the will then of our Lord through the apostles that churches gather on the first day of the week. We should be willing to go that far. As Paul told us, what he ordered for the Corinthians, he had ordered also for the Galatian churches, which assumes they met on the first day of every week as well. And Acts 27, according to Acts 20, verse 7, and the other relevant factors noted above, first day meetings for acts of public worship by the churches was the New Testament norm, as instituted by Christ through the apostles. Now, let's assume that is the case. I think it is. Christ, through his apostles, appointed the first day of the week as public worship this side of uh, the resurrection and ascension of of Christ until his second coming. Now you remember those thorny passages. Romans 14, Galatians 4, Colossians 2. That seem to give Christians liberty on food, drink, and days. Remember those texts? I, I brought them up. One of them we looked at in detail, Colossians 2. Let no man uh, be your judge in terms of Sabbaths, new moons, and festivals. Uh, Romans 14, he who keeps the day keeps it to the Lord. You know, let nobody be your judge. Now, that's interesting because if what I've already said is true, and yet Paul is teaching in Romans 14, oh, you can worship on any day of the week you want, how in the world could a church require a certain day for public worship and discipline a member if they chose to worship on a different day? They couldn't, right? Is first day worship for Christian churches required by the New Testament or not? If it is, then you can't willy-nilly pick any day of the week and say, oh, I do my public worship on Thursdays. Well, if you were a member of our church and we hold that view, we couldn't do anything about it. You know, Victor chose Thursday this week so they're not going to be here. Mario chose Tuesday, so they're, but Mar- Martha chose Sunday this week, so she's here. But you see how ridiculous that gets? That, that's what's required of Romans 14 if you take it the way a lot of people do. So it has to be talking about something else. It can't be talking about the religious duty of sanctifying one day out of seven, namely the first day of the week. It can't be talking about that. It must be talking about something else. So it goes with Colossians 2 and Galatians 4. And historically, uh, that is the by far majority view of those passages. Whatever they're talking about, it can't be the moral law. It can't be... Because then you'd have to say this. Okay, There's no such thing as holy food under the new covenant. Who wants to say that? There's no holy drink. There's no holy food. 
Yes, there is. The bread and the cup. Holy food, holy drink. So I don't know why I went that direction, except it's on the notes. I hope that's helpful because the Romans 14, Colossians 2, Galatians 4 texts are, are uh, troubling for a lot of people, and they can't get over them or around them. But I think if you, if you give uh, the New Testament credit for making the first day of the week a requirement for Christians, then those texts, whatever they mean, they can't undo that. You see as well this um, really atrocious, um, unfortunate direction that American evangelicalism has taken with Saturday services, or now they got Friday services. And I heard uh, recently you could go down to San Diego to a mega church and, oh, and experience the feast of uh, trumpets with, with Christians. It's like, what? Um, well, we don't have uh, Lord's Day meetings during the fall because it's, it's NFL season, and half of our men won't be here, so we have Saturday evening service. No, nobody thinks that way, right? Uh, we don't have Lord's Day services on Christmas. If it happens to, it, it does this year, by the way. If it happens to fall on a Sunday, we, we're going to cancel because... Uh, uh, we think family's important. We're not going to cancel, by the way. There, we hold to a calendar, a religious calendar. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ every first day of the week. But do you see, see what that kind of thinking does? Well, Christmas is occurring on, on, on a Sunday this year. We, we need to cancel church. Where's the priority there? It's like, what? Now... For a lot of us, we were in situations like that where churches did that, and we were just, oh, okay. Um, so we need to be careful not to, you know, look down our noses and all that stuff. It's just a, it's a bummer of, uh, the, it's, the, it's the bubble we live in, American evangelicalism, uh, this side of the Great Awakening, which ended up being not so great because... One of the fruits of the Great Awakening was hyper-individualistic Christianity. That's very American, too, but that's for another day. So 1 Corinthians 16, I think, is important, and I think understanding it, along with Acts 20, verse 7, then if you go outside the New Testament, if you're interested in outside of the New Testament, the phrase, the Lord's own day, is used in the, a first century document called the Didache, some of you have heard that, the teaching, the teaching of the Twelve. Who the author was, we really don't know. It was probably uh, compiled over a two-generation span. Older scholars thought in the second century, by the middle of the second century, contemporary scholars, even um, ones I disagree with on a lot of things, are finding evidence that this didache probably started in the first century. One author I found, of course I like his view, says probably started about 50 AD. So they started compiling these teachings and this document came about called the didache. In the didache, 
Uh, it says, on the Lord's own day, gather together and break bread. And that word, kuriakes, Lord's day, Lord's supper, is the word they use there. Very interesting. Let, let's just assume it goes all the way back to 50 AD. That's, that's before Paul wrote Corinthians. I think Corinthians are in the 50s some, someplace. But that's probably before Paul wrote Corinthians. If that is the case... We're just thinking outside the Bible right now. I'm supposed to preach the Bible, though. Um, if that is the case, the Didache was written, and that part of the Didache was written about 50 A.D. They're already using Lord's Supper and Lord's Day. And it seems that they're taking the supper every Lord's Day as well. Anyway, that's enough about that. First day of the week meetings in the New Testament, were sanctioned by Christ through the apostles. In one sense, that's all I wanted to say today. It took me 44 minutes to say that. First day of the week, meetings for public worship in the New Testament, according to the New Testament, were sanctioned by Christ through his apostles. Now, any disciple of the Lord Jesus, if, if they agree with that, it's, it's, a, it's a done deal, right? Because it's sanctioned by not our church, not your bishop or the pope, not your church's doctrinal statement, not the Reformed tradition, but it's sanctioned by Christ through the apostles. You know, if you can get that in your head and go, yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe that then that's pretty important. I want to follow Jesus. I want to do what he says. I want, okay, that's good. These meetings for worship are not to be placed in the category of adiaphora. Some of you know what that word means, adiaphora. You go, I came to church to hear about adiaphora. Who is he? Well, it's, it's not a person. It's a concept. The concept of an indifferent matter. Something that's outside the law of Christ. Something that is not a sin to not do or to do. You can do it. You don't have to do it. Okay? You can, you can, you can walk uh, to go get your mail. You can crawl. That would look silly. Or you can run or something in between. Neither one of them is less or more righteous or sinful. It's an it's audiophora. It's an indifferent matter. You can have uh, tacos or hot dogs. That's a terrible example because one definitely is sinful compared to uh, tacos. But you see my point. Once you say, this is sanctioned by my Lord through the apostles, it's not an indifferent matter. It's not a take it or leave it. Honey, what are we going to do today? I don't want to go to church. Okay, fine. It's like, no. This is what, you're a Christian. You follow Christ. You do what he says. I'm so glad when I got converted, I said, what do I do now? And the guy said, well, I'll just go get you a Bible. And um, what do I do with the Bible? He said, read it every day, take it to church every Sunday. I said, every Sunday? He goes, yeah. Sunday school, morning and evening worship, come early, stay late. 
Guess what I did? I followed the rules of men. I followed his suggestion, and I'm so thankful I didn't. And it wasn't because I was holy. It was because I felt myself in such need. What do I do now? And he basically said, go to the temple whenever it's, you know, when it's open. So this isn't an issue of Christian liberty. Now, there are some audiophora, things indifferent, connected to the Lord's Day, like where in the Bible does it say you have to meet at 9.30 in the morning? It doesn't. In the Old Covenant, they had morning and evening sacrifices, which that's where the old writers go to establish morning and evening worship. But there's liberty as far as the time, right? Does it say how long should public instruction from the Word of God take every Lord's Day? Liberty, right? Some of you wished I didn't use my liberty as, as much as I do sometimes. Uh, I get it. I've sat in sermons that are probably too long. But Paul did pre- preach until midnight. So there are some adiaphora connected to churches uh, conducting public worship on the Lord's Day. The time... Uh, Where in the Bible does it require hymnals? And where in the Bible does it require Trinity hymnals? And where in the Bible does it require Trinity hymnal Baptist edition? With the confession in the back. It doesn't. Are we free to use the Trinity hymnal? Yeah. How about chairs? How about electricity? How about two services? Morning, evening worship, um, audiophora, indifferent things. But the thing itself that we're looking at, assembling as believers in Christ on the first day of the week, that's not an audiophora thing. That's sanctioned by the Lord through the apostles for the brothers and sisters. It is a good thing from God, remember, was it last week? There's a couple ways you can look at this. Man, God took a day from me? Or, you mean God gives me one day a week when I don't have to be doing all the stuff I race around doing the rest of the week? I can actually trust him for the six days and just go to public worship and do acts of Mercy and necessity and piety and, and eat. We're not eating tacos. To, oh, we are eating Mexican food today. And eat good Mexican food once a month with the brethren, you know. It's the difference between gotta and getta. I get to do this? Uh, but you realize, in one sense, you gotta. And sometimes our gittas, our privileges, uh, we, we, it's not always like every single Lord's Day in the morning. All of us are floating six inches off the ground and can't wait. To, matter of fact, we're going to get there early every Lord's Day because we're so happy and so excited and so... Eh, it's not that way, is it? 
Now, you could say, I wish it were or it ought to be. It's never going to be that way. Sorry. Some people in our congregation are enduring severe trials, and they're not going to be walking six inches off the ground every Lord's Day. And you know what? That's normative New Testament Christianity, isn't it? He who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We have trials and difficulties. We have waves of them sometimes. So that our Gitta, public worship on the Lord's Day, sometimes needs to be motivated by a sense of Gada. I, I, I have a duty to my Savior. Now, quite often in our day, we don't like that. What are you, a pronomian? There's another one. Huh? Pro-law? Well, yeah. Not unto justification, though. Does, does, does the moral law regulate the Christian's conduct? We just considered the fifth commandment today. You've got to do that. Honor your father and mother. Honor all authority figures in your life, starting at home. But you get a, but sometimes it's the gotta part that still needs to motivate you. Maybe not the gotta part, but I, I got to do this because even though I don't feel like it, I know it's right and it comes from God. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to step over my affections, my passions, my, uh, my disturbed desires, my my, my bad inclination, I'm going to step over my lusts and do what God says. That's what I mean by sometimes gitta or gotta should motivate us. Uh, because if you don't do that, you're, you're setting yourself up to give in to all sorts of inclinations of the soul. You say, well, I don't feel like not committing adultery, therefore... I, I, I want to be genuine to, my, to myself, so I'm going to commit it. Huh? Um, as one of my Scottish friends would say, no, can he do? Which I think means, no, may it never be. That's not how we deal with inclinations and passions that are going in contradiction to the will of Christ. We have them, remaining corruption, right? We fight them. We find out what the will of God is, and we say, you know what? That's what I want to do. But I don't always want to do it, wretched man that I am. But I'm not going to give in to the inclinations not to do what I know is the will of Christ for me. I'm going to pray to God to help me. And ask and pray that God has good friends in my life that encourage me and that helps me do what's right because I'm a Christian. <laughs> I'm a person who follows Christ and tries to do his will. Well, I'm mumbling. I finished about 20 minutes ago. So the last was just an exhortation and encouragement. I think that the first day appearances of our Lord after his resurrection, before his ascension, are meant not just as, as historical footnotes, but they are meant to teach us something. There's something unique about the first day. 
Then the first day meetings in the New Testament church, we looked at just two texts. The assumption is that's when they met, and they met every week, not just at Troas, not just at Corinth, but the Galatian churches, plural. How many were there in the Galatian region? We don't know. But these and other texts indicate to us that what the subsequent Christian generations have done is basically the right thing. They add first day meetings for public worship. Now, one thing I haven't addressed is the reason. Why the first day? That is a huge question, isn't it? What is the basis for first day gatherings? We will consider that uh, next hour and in two weeks. But if you give the third grade Sunday school answer to the most questions, you'd be right. What is the basis for first day meetings? And all third graders said, Jesus, right? There's something unique about Jesus, so unique that he can work and then enter rest and shift the day of public worship for God's people from the seventh day to the first day. He can work and then enter rest on the first day and shift the, the day of, uh, of, of public gatherings. That, that, he must be pretty important if he can do that. It's exactly what he did. And this work rest of the incarnate mediator is actually grounded on the work Rest of the first creation. God worked. God rested. Christ worked. Christ rested. The day of the creator's rest established that day as the day, as a unique day. The day that the redeemer enters into his rest is the establishment of of the new day that is reflective of a work completed. Why did he enter into rest? Why did he raise from the dead? He had finished his work of redeeming, of redemption. And we uh, are right to meet on the first day and to sing in light of that. Let's pray. We come to you, Father. We ask for your blessings on this study in the appearances of our Lord, and then the first day gatherings in the New Testament, we pray, give us, give our heads straight thoughts about these things, and incline our hearts toward obeying the Lord Jesus gladly. And when we don't want to obey, uh, uh, give us grace that we might run over our negative affections and do, and live principled lives as conscientious disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now to sing to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and receive our praises through the mediator who worked and entered rest all for us and for our salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.